Welcome to Inspire Campfire, a podcast where ordinary people tell their stories of extraordinary adventure. These are campfire stories meant to inspire the rest of us to light the fire within, get outside, follow our dreams, and return to tell our own stories. Ready? Let's strike the match. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Scott Wurzbacher. And today we're going to talk about resolve and confidence. And today's guest has them both like no one else. And she's used them to fuel her voice that calls her to adventure. Sophie Hilaire is with us today. And she has a long list of taking on the biggest and best challenges. She's a graduate of West Point and a U.S. Army veteran which included combat deployment in Afghanistan. She has an MBA from the Wharton School of Business, and she worked for the elite McKinsey and Company consulting firm. Sophie has climbed to the summit of Mount Everest, and she encountered death along the way. After all of this, she quits her six-figure job and moves out of her New York City apartment to spend two years of self-discovery living in a van. But this story is not about the achievement it's about the person and the fire behind who she is. She describes herself as a lifelong misfit and thrill-seeking veteran who quit her six-figure job to take on homesteading, healing, and helping others shepherd their deepest dreams into reality. And as you can tell by her accomplishments, Sophie is a badass. Yet, she exudes loving kindness, and I can't wait to share her story with you all. Sophie, welcome to the campfire. Thank you, Scott. What a nice intro. I appreciate it. I we we got to dive in. We have so much to cover here, Sophie. Like just I'm just so inspired by this whole thread um and you know, I really enjoyed the first conversation that you and I had before this. So I want to start with a quote that I found on a social media post that you made. And you said in that post I grew up thinking my achievements were my value. No matter what I accomplished, even summiting Mount Everest, people told me what actually inspired them about me is that I've always known I can do anything. Can we talk about your upbringing and what got you to that point of belief and confidence in yourself? Well, this is a very appropriate place to open, I feel. It kind of gets to the heart of everything. Um, so I'll just go deep. Yeah, I I think on, on on one hand, that statement could probably sound really, I don't know, just like I'm really into myself and a little overconfident. But I it's it really I promise you, it comes more from many years of blind spots and not um, actually understanding <laughs> what I was doing. So I think. Um, but yeah, I truly believe this. I, and I know this for myself and I actually know this for everyone else, too, is that anyone can do anything. But for me, where this comes from is definitely my upbringing. So I was raised to be very achievement focused. I don't think that's unusual, um, especially in American society or plenty of other societies. But I think my upbringing had a particularly like it just had a little twist to it because um, it was, you know, achievement focused but also the way I was raised was that that was just how you received love. There was a finite amount to go around. It wasn't unconditional. It was very much conditional. Mm -hmm. 
And um, that's that was the price to pay, I guess, like achieve as much as possible, be the shiny object, be the favorite for the day. You know, I don't I think parents probably raise kids like that with the best of intentions. But, you know, it, it, it was hard on me, especially as the oldest of three kids, because there was also a lot of violence in the home. And I would say 90 something percent of it was directed at me. And it was it was a pretty intense kind of violence. It was not um, I don't think it was typical. It was, you know, very physical, very, I would say, emotionally abusive, too. But um, the ways that are very just the things I remember most from my childhood were, you know, knives, blood, chainsaws, just a lot of intense, violent, violent things. So I think because I already survived hell by the time I left the house at 17, ever since then, everything's just been pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, the strongest version of me ever is not necessarily today. I'd say I'm stronger in other ways, but just being able to withstand like the most intense things. I mean, that was like me by age 17. I, I, that, that version of me was the badass. Now I'm kind of like trying to soften and like get rid of something. <laughs> so, um, but she's the, she's the one who made everything easy ever since then. And I think that having, you know, this kind of trauma in your background, I, I, you know, I'm, I talk about it a lot more now because I think it's something that people um, don't talk about. And, and the thing is like that trauma is who is what made me who I am today. And I think that trauma is never a great thing in and of itself, obviously, but would I ever go back and change my childhood for a different one? Definitely not. Like there's gifts that I've extracted from having to go through this hard stuff that I didn't choose. But I think that's what's, you know, led me, you know, you read off this list of things at the beginning of this call. It's kind of funny to like sit back and hear that from from someone else. But um, but yeah, where does that come from? I mean, to be honest, it's not like all of the positive things I used to talk about, like, oh yeah, you know, I'm just <laughs> I'm just like scrappy because, you know, I like challenges. It's, you know, there's something dark underneath all of that, but I've chosen to work on it and, um, you know, try to look at it more as like almost a superpower in adulthood than something that holds me back and keeps me in this victim state. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for just like the rawness and the, and the vulnerability. Like I have a few things like you really, you picked up right on the beginning, you know, this idea of this, you know, this resolve and this strong self-confidence. Like I, as I was writing it, like I, as I, I was thinking to myself that like, yes, I could see how people would see that as I'm going to say, for lack of a better word, like an arrogance. But I also knew that you knew that that's that this is so much bigger than you. And it is about like, you know, this confidence that all of us have inside it. Somehow you've been able to bring it out like earlier in your life. And I just think that's such an important point. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's funny because I haven't inhabited all these kind of different chapters or dimensions or worlds within this lifetime, which, you know, I, it, it's something I can't escape doing. I love, um, I'm just curious about a lot of different things, but, but it's funny. Cause like the people who are from the last chapter I was in, maybe like my New York city, McKinsey, whatever consulting chapter, they think what I'm doing now is really crazy. But the thing is like all the other people who I'm around now who are doing this, like, this is just normal. So there, there was this quote that I heard someone say one time that was, you don't have to know what you're doing to start doing it. And if you don't start, it'll never happen. Mm. And I love that because it's just, 
it, it speaks to me so much. It just sums up like this beginner mindset. I'm happy to jump into anything with that. I'm just excited to know more about because, you know, it, that quote just basically gives you permission and a kick in the butt to just go start doing whatever it is. And I yeah. just, I, I really think that doesn't apply to just people with trauma that could literally be anyone. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't start, it'll never happen. So yeah. So you, you kind of addressed like the struggle, the adversity, you talked about violence in, in your childhood. You also talked about, I think I th I've heard you say before, like tiger parenting, um, and this sort of like in achievement mindset that was kind of instilled in you. Like, could you just talk a little bit more about that sort of achievement mindset that was kind of nurtured into you? Yeah. So I'm half Korean and my dad's, you know, Caucasian grew up in Pennsylvania, but like my mom definitely had the more dominant parenting style mm -hmm. in the house. And that's like the, some people actually haven't heard the term tiger parenting is like, it was made famous by this book. Um, but it's basically, you know, the way that Asian parents specifically, um, like obsess about achievement with their kids and they've got to be like perfect at all these piano lessons and the A pluses and, and everything. Um, so yeah, I was just raised in that. And to me, it was normal. It was also normal in some ways because it kind of seemed like all the other half Korean kids that I was friends with mm -hmm. seemed to have, I wouldn't say anyone had as violent of a situation as me, but I also didn't know because I just assumed everyone had a life like this and no one was talking about it because I knew better than to talk about it. So, so yeah, it, to me, that was just normal, but it kind of started off as a kid, you know, with, you've got to be the best in every single class, like get the best grades. And then you've got to be the one that's chosen to go do these extra things. And yes, the piano lessons, like we're going every single week and you're practicing every day. And uh, even, you know, kind of other things, like I remember one summer, I literally like had to read the dictionary from <laughs> cover to cover. When I think about a couple of the books I read when I was younger, literally I read the Bible in second grade. And then I read the, I read this dictionary and just, just things like that. It was so like, I got, you know, but in my head, it was almost like kind of fun to have this goal that was kind of big and work towards it. And if you just keep working towards it, you're going to get there and you'll be done with it one, at one point. And when you look back, you'll be really satisfied and maybe you'll have learned a bunch of stuff. So, so yeah, it was kind of just like the training, uh, I guess, of, you know, being hyper-focused on achievement. And that was kind of the building box of how to get there. But the, the way it made, you know, me feel, I think it was just this never ending, you know, like these little things, like discrete things, like finishing a book, I could do that. But that was like a temporary thing because the bigger thing of what I was actually trying to achieve through this, getting validation from parents or feeling loved, that that was just like a thing. Nothing was ever enough. And I would just spend, you know, many, many, many years chasing that and turn me into this archetype. I would consider the insecure overachiever, which uh, which is a dangerous place to be when you get mixed up with the wrong people. But um, but yeah, that's that was kind of you know, how my brain was programmed. Just to back up some context on how you and I met, you are an author in the new book by Miriam Lancewood and Lori, Lori King, Wilder Journeys. And um, in that, you talk about your experience on Mount Everest. And there's a number of things that you kind of go through. And we're going to talk about some of that today. But one of the things that you mentioned in that in that chapter is this idea that trauma passes through 14 different generations. Mm-hmm. And I kind of would love to just hear a little bit more about that. I've heard some of that before, but 
you know, I'd love to like more explicitly, you've got some knowledge on this. I'd love to just kind of hear your, your thoughts on that. I find epigenetics so interesting. Um, that's where that came from. I think it was a study where they were able to like track this DNA getting passed on through worms or something, but, um, but they say it's in people too. So the example that I always hear is that um, the offspring of Holocaust survivors have, even if they never lived through anything even remotely similar, something in their DNA and their like stress hormones are permanently altered. And this continues on for 14 generations. But at any point in time, like each person can also impact the next 14 generations. So yeah, there are going to be things that live in all of us that come from ancestors that I would say most of us probably can't go back 14 generations. I personally can't even tell you a single name three generations back. On me. I can't even tell you one of my grandfather's names. And there's so much history, you know, that's just lost before that. But I tell you what, like your body keeps the score and, um, and, and that still lives in all of us. So I think uh, the reason I get so interested in epigenetics is because because I don't know these stories that came before me, I'm very, very aware of the generation before me and me and like some of the generation before that. But anything before that, I hardly know anything. And and I'm just very curious because I feel like there's some answers there about I don't what what landed me in this exact, you know, life being born in rural Ohio of mixed race on both sides and the challenges that have come up and the gifts that I've had and the, the much easier start in life I've had than plenty of my ancestors probably. And also because I know that if left unchecked, a lot of the dark stuff that comes from both sides um, will just perpetuate and continue on. These are called family cycles. And a lot of people, you know, just think of it as like, well, you're all just growing up in the same house. Like that's how this always continues to just keep happening. But um, and yes, that's definitely a big part of it, this learned behavior, but also it's like literally in our DNA. So if I were to keep the human species going for that, another generation beyond me, um, I would love to break as many of these cycles as, as possible that I think are really toxic. Hey everyone, it's Scott here. This podcast is a passion project for me because I absolutely love adventure. And it's thanks to the effort of my residential real estate team here in Charlotte, North Carolina, that many of you know as the W Realty Group, that this podcast gets funded. This awesome group of people have unmatched levels of competence and caring for our clients. If you know of anyone looking to buy or sell a home, our team serves the Charlotte, North Carolina market, but we can also help you find an agent anywhere throughout the US or Canada through our highly connected network. When you support our real estate business, you are also supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening and thanks for your referrals. Yeah, it's wild. So, you know, what I'm hearing you say is things that that happened to ancestors 14 generations ago may still exist in me. Oh, yeah, for sure. And and things that happened to me may still exist 14 generations from now. And so I have the power to affect that many people down the line, positively and negatively. What do we do with that information? I think we just, for me personally, I just want to even if even if like I don't have kids, I just think we can all affect all these other people's. It's not like, oh, it's just, you know, in our DNA. There's things it's because it's a choice to reprogram your DNA and to take a different path. 
I think, yeah, the unconscious path is just, okay, just let's just keep this, these cycles, this brand of toxicity going for another generation. Um, and so, yeah, I just want to do as much as I can to, to not perpetuate that. That would be yikes, almost criminal, I would think, but it's, it's pretty normal. You said one thing I want to just hit before we move past. So you said, um, we can reprogram our DNA. Mm -hmm. So for people listening, like, how do you do that? Oh, I think it's a lot of like doing the work, if you will, which is really vague. And I used to get so mad when people would say things like that because, <laughs> because I knew that there was something I was trying, a problem I was trying to solve here, but I couldn't wrap my hands around it. Like, what is doing the work? What, what is the work? Can it, someone give me a manual for this? But there is none. And it's been... For me, of course, I'm not done doing the work. I never will be. But you have to kind of go just start seeking and stumbling into a bunch of different things in order to see what pieces of your own puzzle like you start to heal and understand and and reprogram. For me, what that's looked like is a lot of books, like many years of weekly therapy conversations and friendships with people who have opened my eyes to different perspectives, going back and talking to people from my past who were adults then who had like an adult perspective on what was going on in my household, who could help explain things to me in almost sometimes even a clinical way, which gives me clues on like what books I can go read next, what Facebook groups to go join where people are, you know, all these strangers like had a very similar experience about different things and how they were raised and how, you know, able to like share resources, information to heal each other. So yeah, I mean, if I, I really think it's like our generation that's has access to all these tools now, finally, it's just a matter of getting over the aversion to using them because I think there's a lot of like, I think there's, you know, that's more of that toxic old stuff, just trying to keep people stuck in these old patterns. So um, but yeah, all the information's out there now. If you have any desire to work on yourself, like no, nothing could hold you back. You could literally find out everything probably on YouTube, but you need to be curious and study yourself to know what even keywords to go search and, and, and yeah, what to look up. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. I, it's such an interesting topic to me and something I'm like, I'm really interested in. I think people are starting to wake up to it more and more and recognize it's not, it's not woo woo anymore. It's, mm. it's real. It's so um, human. Yeah. Yeah. So Sophie, you have had um, a few different phases. I'm going to call them phases or chapters in your life. And I'd love to, in the time that we have, just kind of just touch on each one of them and sort of some of your learnings and some of the motivations, like what kind of got you to that place. And then, then we'll talk about this thread that kind of ties them together. But you went to West Point and, uh, and joined the army and mm -hmm. had a deployment in Afghanistan. Can you kind of talk us through that chapter? Like, can you talk about that, the voice inside that called you to that path? Well, I mean, I went to West Point when I was 17. <laughs> it's funny because people think of like West Point or especially boot camp when I started as like prison. And West Point kind of looks like a prison, feels like a prison. But to me at that age with my worldview, West Point was freedom. To me, it was, you know, I was immediately financially independent. I, you know, was going to have a I was in college for four years, was going to have a job for the next five years being an army officer. And, and I, freedom from even having to make decisions about what to do next in my life. Um, because the next, if, with the one decision to go to West Point, it was like the next nine years were already decided for me. So to me, West Point was freedom because like when I got there, I was like, okay, no one can 
yes, these upperclassmen can sort of make your life hell in different ways or make you do a bunch of push-ups or something, but like they can't hit you. They can't abuse you. There's, you know, there's like the limits to what they could do compared to what I had just come from were like so kind and gentle and coddling almost that that it didn't bother me. So that's why I went to West Point. I knew that my my family and I were not on good terms at the time and I was really just looking forward to being estranged and having some freedom and peace. I think also I you know, I've because I was so achievement focused and like had, you know, lofty goals even as a kid that I would go after, to me this was so different from where I'd come from that it was really interesting and attractive to me because I had just gone to an all-girls Catholic high school and I was not, I mean, I did not grow up watching Saving Private Ryan or Band of Brothers. Like this stuff was not like fun or interesting to me. And I was very kind of girly and like, like to dress up, I don't know, do all the things that were just not typically associated with the army. I wasn't even like that much of an athlete in high school. So I just thought, ooh, like if I go do this, you know, I'm guaranteed to like become this, you know, like realize all these other aspects of myself that I've never really gotten to to know. Um, and and also part of me wondered, like, oh, could I do this? Like, it's kind of it's not a guarantee. So, yeah, let's go for it. Can I ask you, like West Point? I mean, there is a, it has a reputation like I mean, it and it commands respect. And I'm just curious if that reputation and you know, the degree to which a, a degree literally from West Point like commands that respect. How did that play into your decision to go there or did it? Ooh, man, you're making me think of things that I, I'm not even sure I was aware of. Well, I think I've historically been very uh, drawn to strong authority figures, whether that was my mom, you know, where it all started or um, you know, the authority of West Point, like you pointed out, obviously the whole military rank structure, then even at McKinsey when I was doing consulting, mm-hmm. like there's definitely, they'll tell you it's a flat organization, but it's definitely not. Yeah, just having like someone tell me what to go do felt oddly comforting, even if it, it but probably even, not only even if, especially if it was like, you know, kind of had like a um, high stakes or like, you know, something a little edgy. Yeah, that was laced with. So um, I do think that was also part of why I was drawn to there. Like in some ways it felt like freedom in other ways it felt like, you know, just safety and the comfort of the familiar of being told what to do. Yeah, I think also just knowing going to West Point was going to come with a five year service obligation. And the year that I went there was 2005, a few years into the war. That felt also like just really kind of thrilling exciting I mean I wanted to be part of something bigger I wanted to be part of this moment in history that I mean I think very differently about now Um, but at the time you know like just being around violence I was pretty comfortable with that and I realized not every like that was the thing that most people were like oh I could never join the army because like I would hate being told what to do or you know, I'd be too scared to be in the army. Like none of these things ever crossed my mind. So I kind of knew also I was like uniquely programmed to probably do just fine in that type of a context. So. Yeah. So speaking of, um, you know, looking for somebody to tell you what to do, especially as it comes to going to do something edgy, you were deployed to Afghanistan after school. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, that's the only thing I really wanted to do in the Army. That was my one big goal. I wanted to deploy. I wanted to feel like 
I, you know, like leading soldiers in combat, be like really in it. Like I didn't want to just fly overhead. I didn't want to like do it from a computer far away. Like I wanted to be in it. I wanted to like be with the locals and like feel like I was making an Im- impact on the ground. During the day, I was doing humanitarian work for a provincial reconstruction team that was teaching the Afghans how to farm things other than poppy, but still make a living. So it was like farming and animal husbandry and really interesting work, actually. Not sure how effective it was. Oh, but I'm seeing the beginnings of the thread, though. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We'll get to that. Yeah. And, and then at night I was going on raids to, um, yeah, help detain suspected terrorists by, uh, getting information and, and searching the women and children in the home. So I did feel like I got to experience everything I wanted in a deployment. I saw like, you know, I was in their homes quite frequently in these mud huts or collots and, Um, I got to kind of feel like I was traveling in a foreign land. I got to like fly into remote areas in the middle of the night and just be on a foot patrol for days, like seeing these parts of the world that, you know, I mean, we probably look like we had just touched down from outer space, the way we were dressed, the way we were, you know, acting, talking. And it was like, what an interesting experience to have. Um, And also, you know, there was there were some dark things, um, nothing like too crazy that happened with my team on deployments. We were really lucky. I feel like in a lot of ways, I just got to experience, you know, a lot of the, the, the highlights of like being in this beautiful country, um, without, you know, a lot of the traumatic effects that I know a lot of people came away with. I mean, for me, that was more my childhood than like time in the army messing me up in the head. But, but yeah, I'm really glad that I got to do that. And uh, when I came back from Afghanistan, the only thing that would have kept me in the army was going to Korea because my mom's from Korea. And I knew that there was a lot of like unhealed, unknown stuff going back, especially mm. on that side for those, all those generations. And yeah. there was a piece of me I didn't fully understand because I didn't really understand. Like it was so it was, it was a little weird growing up in middle of nowhere, Ohio with like an Asian mom when like that's totally not the norm out there. Yeah, I, I stayed in for an extra year to go. Um, work for a general in Korea, um, which was a great experience. And and then at that point, I got out. That's awesome. Well, thank you for your service. And I know we could do a whole podcast episode just on on your time at West Point and in the Army. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to I want to continue through these chapters before we leave the military, though. And in the spirit of Sophie and her accomplishments, I do want to mention your Guinness World Record. For the fastest marathon in full military uniform. Um, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I guess on the topic of just like setting lofty goals and going after them. When I first got to West Point, I was the most out of shape person in my platoon. Yeah. And that's really bad if you're a woman because you already stand out. And, you know, it's not really in a good way. And I... I was just kind of winging it like I do with a lot of things, but you can't really wing being, you know, able to, to hang in a long run or a long ruck march. Like your body will literally just quit on you at a certain mm-hmm. point. So I had to learn all that in real time when I was there. And, uh, and so the biggest thing you'll see, you know, it's like the PT test in the army, two mile run, two minutes of push-ups, two minutes of sit-ups. And those things, like there's a number associated with that, which is like what your value is basically to this <laughs> And 
Um, and my, my value was pretty low because out of a scale of 300, I think I had a, my first test, I had like a 141, which like is beyond failing. So um, by the time I left West Point, I was, I was like way above 300, almost at 400, like 360 something. The, the work that it took to get there was like a lot of just, you know, actually I went from being so bad at running and falling out of every run by just, I would just quit. I would just walk. I'd be like, I'm just going to start walking up this hill. And that is that is like the worst move you can do but I just couldn't I couldn't actually move my legs fast enough so yeah I actually decided I went from that to I'm going to train for a marathon because that's gonna if, if I could do that then I think that'll take care of this problem um so I ran that marathon and it actually went a lot better than I expected I almost qualified for Boston the first time so after that I got a little hooked on marathons and I set some goals within that okay I want to qualify for Boston I want to do it in this time I want to um, you know, and so anyway, each year I would run two marathons um, and I would train very dedicatedly for these. Mm -hmm. One of them I would do for I would raise money for a, a veteran charity. And this went on for several years. And I was always asking the same people for, you know, donations. And I once I graduated from West Point, I just felt like it was a it was a little different. Like, it's not like, oh, support this college student in her marathon. It was like this grown woman who has a job now is still asking for. So I, I felt like. I still want to raise money for these causes, but I want, I had to up the ante. I had to like make it a little different than, okay, so I'm just going to do, go do another marathon. So I remembered that I saw in the Guinness Book of World Records years before that there was a, a soldier who had run it in his full military uniform. And so I thought, okay, well, now that I have a good sense of what my marathon times are, I, I just want to go back and see this time. Like, is it really ridiculous and out like totally some superhuman thing, or is it actually like something I could go for? And I was surprised it actually did seem doable. I think it was around, um, it was a little over five hours and it was set by a British guy. And um, the definition of a full military uniform that was established by this previous record was helmet, obviously like camo tops and bottoms, body armor with bulletproof plates inside, which are pretty heavy, and then boots. And so I was like, okay, this is about like, I don't know, somewhere between 35 to 45 pounds and over five hours. Like I was running marathons in three hours. So, yeah. or three and change. So, um, so yeah, I just, th this time I just told everyone, all right, this time I'm going to go for this world record. <laughs> um, and that's another thing I do is like, I know that if I want to do something, I'll just start saying I'm going to do it because if I keep telling people I'm going to do this thing, I never want to go back and then be that yeah, type of, you're on the hook. Never did it. Yeah. yeah. So, so I just start saying things until I'm like, okay, well, now I guess I have to do that. I've done this with so many things, but that was another one of them. And then as it got closer, I thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be really bad if like, now these people have already donated money, but I don't get it. Um, but like so many more people donated that year than any other year. And ultimately I did end up like, yeah, beating the record by, I don't know, almost 20 minutes. That's um, awesome. Congratulations on that. Okay. So as we, we kind of move from your military career, the next thing is you go to the very elite Wharton School of Business and start working for McKinsey and Company, like always going after the best. <laughs> How do you go from the military to an elite business school and an elite consulting firm? To me, I knew I wanted to go to business school after I got out of the army because my dad had his MBA and I always just kind of thought, okay, this world of business seems mm -hmm. like vague enough that I could do anything within it and maybe even something fun and interesting, but in a way that, you know, 
makes money and helps provide and all of that. But yeah, so I went to Wharton. Um, I was very grateful to have gotten in. Obviously, it's an amazing school. And then from there, though, I still like it's not like when I was in the army, I spent all this time researching the business world and had some dream about exactly what I wanted to do. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I didn't even know anything about the non-government space. So to me, consulting felt like a very like just logical way to approach to enter the world of business, because as a strategy consultant for McKinsey, you know, as a generalist, too, which is how I joined, which is no specialty, I would get to see every industry and every function. We call it a random walk um, across so many different projects within, you know, even just a couple of years was my goal. Just I was like, okay, try to just make it there 18 months. I ended up being there for five years. But yeah, to me, it was like almost like a continued education that I was getting paid for because I knew by the end of however many months or years I was there, I would have, you know, which is what I would what I did end up leaving with everything from government projects to marketing for a candy company to, you know, operations for a steel company to, um, I mean, just the list goes on and on. So yeah, because I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, consulting felt like a really good way to keep like learn a little bit of everything. And then I thought ultimately, like once I'm ready, I will have found my perfect match. Like I'll, I'll love this one industry or I'll love this one client and I'll, you know, get poached by them or, or, you know, another well-worn path is, okay, now I've learned everything about how Fortune 100 companies do business. I've literally been telling the C-suite how they should, what their next move should be and how they should think about the next 10 years. Like now I'm ready to go start my own company. Yeah. So that's kind of what, what led me to that path. Um, I can't say any of that ended up ending the way I thought it would, but it was, it, it also like, continue to only open more doors for me. Um, Obviously, the relationships you'll build there are really, you know, important and powerful and lasting, even though I'm not really on that path anymore. And the skill set is huge. Like the way you think through problems and, and problem solve and work on a team and 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 just get anything accomplished is a skill set that I use today without even thinking about it. It's just intuitive at this point, And it helps me I just now I just try to channel it for things that I'm actually excited about and passionate about. Like there was a a business that reached out this year. It was an Amish country store in Idaho that wanted help getting funding and needed a business plan written up. Like, yeah, I could do that. And it's really exciting actually learning about the what's going on in an Amish country store. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah I love that. Well, it's it's so and this what's interesting to me is like again, we started this podcast talking about your resolve and the self-confidence that you have. But you know, and we've we've also heard it said, you know, you become the six people that you spend most time with. And like the people that you choose to be around, like that, you know, fills you up and helps you become the person that you are. And it's very clear to me that your whole life you've always pursued the best. Mm. I mean, West Point second to none. You know, you go into the U.S. Army. Now you're at Wharton, which is top business school and McKinsey and Company, like top consulting company. I'm just curious, like, was that part of your was that part of your intentionality as you were kind of going through really your your life, like both the the military career and the business career? Like, were you intentionally always apt seeking the best? This is another thing that's probably really obvious to everyone around me, but like I've never really considered. <laughs> yes. I do think like now when, when, when you say it like that, I'm like, what, did I ever set myself up for, oh, I think I'll just go for this lower tier thing that might have a better quality of life or might, 
you know, there's always a trade-off. Less prestige. I think I just, I chase prestige hardcore. Um, that was something that I was kind of programmed to do, I think. What I've realized as I've, you know, after going through enough of these stage gates and experiencing enough of these elite institutions is there is obvious, there, there is something different about them. And that's why they have these reputations that they've worked so hard to to get to. And I am very honored that any of them have you know, allowed little old me to enter their doors and be a part of, you know, their history. They were lucky to have you, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> You're being humble. Sometimes I feel like I embarrass some of them now, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I also realized that looking to external anything for answers or validation is such a trap. And it's not, and I actually feel like, you know, I'm not saying I could go start my own. I, don't, I wouldn't even want to start my own consulting firm. But, you know, there's there is a level of quality and a level of like, like when I worked for this general in the army, I mean, obviously, that's he was a three star general. The highest you can go is four stars. He was like pretty high up there. Mm-hmm. And I got to see, you know, what what he does all day. I, I mean, I was the eyes on anything before it went across his desk. Like I would even have to like ex- basically distilled down what other people wanted to communicate to him and so i'm like very aware of what was going on at his level and i'm also very aware of the standards that he had to get to that point and i didn't always work for bosses in the army who were as tough as him or who just expected perfection that had to be so perfect but i also once i left that job obviously there were things about her i was like this stuff was just so you know there's so much nonsense and things that i didn't uh see the point in but when you kind of realize like the the level that most people will operate at and not, you know, because they don't expect that much from other people, it's just a different output. And I, I think there's value in that, too, because believe me, I am like unwinding and trying to unravel a lot of like wound up stuff that I've had in me yeah. for many years. But at the end of the day, like that level of, you know, people pushing themselves and, and like pushing their teammates for um, sometimes it's perfection. Sometimes it's a little too much, but you can't deny it, it puts out products that like all of us get. Totally. To so <laughs> it's, it's powerful. It's important. And you know, it's you, pe- it's people like you, we need people like you with that achievement mindset to move the world forward. It's, it's so important. You know, I don't want to gloss over your business career, but there's more to the story because, you know, the next adventure is choosing the largest of the seven summits, right? There's seven summits that you could choose on this planet. You chose Everest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I have, I have not done the seven summits and not even really trying to, that's never been a goal of mine, but yeah, Everest was one that I was it's so, biggest. so <laughs> to get to go to. Yeah. So I'm curious what, but something happened on Mount Everest. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't even talk about that. Yeah, that was my only goal for Everest, actually. I mean, I had a few goals. The biggest one, though, was to come back, change, not the same person. It's a two-month journey. So I, w- I didn't want to just do another, like, two months of my everyday routine. Yeah. I, I knew I wanted to come back, j- just changed. And then, you know, obviously, I wanted I, – I knew I was going to come back in one piece. Like, I paid handsomely for, you know, the best – tour operator on on the mountain so that um, I didn't have to worry about dying there. So on the mountain, it was a crazy year because I went in 2019. And, 
yes, Everest is always in the news every year when the season is happening. It's only, you know, that one season, April through May. Right. But, well, no, sorry. There's a much, there's like a handful of people that go in the fall, but it's mm-hmm. nothing like, you know, the main season. Right. And, uh, but that year there were 13 deaths, which is a lot more than average. And that was the closest. I mean, it was just such an extreme it's hard to like how do you even sum up this whole expedition in like a paragraph it's hard but but yeah there was there was so much beauty I experienced I I came back you know an insomniac because it was so good up there I slept amazing on ice for those two months and like almost 12 hours a night it was it, it was so good it was so good yeah I came back to like my harsh reality of the business suits and the emails and the laptop and the job that I wasn't passionate about. And it was, it was rough, but yeah, I just experienced so much magnificence in nature and also a lot of, you know, these other harsh, intense, extreme things about the reality of life and the fragility of it. And, and what draws people like me to Everest wanting to know, you know, push, push out the boundaries of what your perceived limits are. It's like a really, I guess it's probably a pretty addicting thing for, you know, people like us who like end up on this mountain. There's something very similar about everyone's like um, just knows this is one of those rare places you get to experience what your limits are. It's kind of like why I wanted to go into the army. I mean, I just thought, okay, well, in this lifetime, I could experience what it's like to be in a war feeling like, you know, you're on the good guy side. Like, why wouldn't I want to experience that? Or when I went to North Korea, this was a few years before Everest. And I just thought, okay, it's legal. Actually, I see here, here, it's actually legal for me to go. Why wouldn't I go for a week, run a marathon and see what it's like? So, um, but yeah, same thing on Everest. And, you know, I saw people pushing themselves way more. I mean, I see people push themselves at McKinsey. I see people bust their butts at at business school or in the army for sure. Um, But I never was around a bunch of people who like knew that, and I was one of them, like, we are right dancing on the edge of death at any given time. And you actually don't know. It, you could feel amazing and just die of a heart attack in, in one second. And I don't know. But all I know is I continue to walk closer and closer to the death zone. Okay, now I'm literally in the death zone above 8,000 meters. Every second now I am dying. And yet I'm still going because in my head I'm like, I just want to get to this summit and see what's there and then come back and be this this new version of myself. And it was 1000% worth it, obviously, because there, you know, there wasn't much of a price to pay other than the financial one for me, which I don't miss that money at all. But yeah, there was something really intense about seeing people literally just trek themselves to death. And something about that I really respected if I'm being honest it's it's I see so many people like hold back 99% of what they could become or do in everyday life and out there I see people like literally dancing around 99.2.3.4.5 and then like just obviously there's something about it we should have some level of self-preservation but I just don't normally experience like being around people who are literally pushing that hard, like to the edge of their life as like a healthy person. So a lot of things shifted in me by the time I came back. Sophie, when you were on the mountain, you wrote about like witnessing death. And I'm just curious what, like what, what that feels like for you when you're up that high and you're trekking to the summit, 
Yeah, I kept wondering if that was about to be me. I wondered, you know, there's a lot of people at different points in the mountain that you would see that were dead. Some people have been there for decades. Some people have been lit, just hung. There's one body. It was like a scarecrow. I, I mean, it was the first one that I saw and it was really... It was really hard because it's also you see it from afar and you just know you have to keep walking closer and closer to it because it's literally on the trail. And then, um, yeah, just this moment where you're right next to this person that um, came to this mountain with the same dream as you. And now their soul has left and this body is still here. It was it was a lot. There's some bodies like that. There's some people who you just see fro like dragged along with a rope. Maybe they're not dead yet. But it's like going to be a pretty brutal, you know, next several hours for their body getting like banged up and dragged down this mountain because they're lucky to even have that. There's people who were sitting down and getting yelled at by their teammates or guides like you have to get up the second you sit down like you're just not going to get back up. And I didn't know, well, when I come back, is that person still going to be sitting here um, and the rest of their team's gone by then? This was more death than I had experienced in any other part of my life I you know very fortunately knock on wood like just haven't gone through that with you know someone that I've been you know like grown up with and been extremely close to yet in my life and in the army even like death was kind of a part of it but it wasn't as much in my face anywhere close to you know this mountain but it did make you you know I think when people do experience death or the loss of a loved one that's close to them I mean they always say the same thing it just makes you realize life is short like you should go do the things that you know you've always been saying you're gonna do and uh, there was I think something around being around like around that energy that 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 I I gleaned somewhat of like a similar takeaway um, from that experience so you had that experience you also had an experience at the summit where in your writing, I think I don't have it in front of me, but you said something to the extent that you felt whole. Yeah. Yeah. I felt I, it's such a hard thing to describe. And when I got to the summit, when I was approaching it, like the steps leading up to it, and I'd seen this scene, this shape of, you know, the crest of the summit of Mount Everest and like Nat Geo and all these things for like mm -hmm. so many years. And I didn't even, I do like visualizing things, you know, for manifesting and all of that. But this was a scene I did not dare to visualize because I felt like I was going to jinx it if I got my heart set on it too much because it, it shouldn't have been about the summit. Obviously, that would have been great. But I knew like my first and foremost goal was just to come back transformed. And uh, but once it was actually happening and I was like, oh, my gosh, wait, I've seen this before. And wait, it's like literally right there. And I can count the number of steps between where I am now and where I'm about to have this moment and I'm not dead yet. And I feel like I'm okay. And then just stepping into that moment and, you know, the sun was just starting to rise. It was right around 6am and all the mountains are turning purple around you. And you're looking down at the highest mountains in the world. Cause a lot of them are just all around mm -hmm. Everest, these other 8,000 meter peaks. And you're looking at China the same time you're looking at Nepal. I mean, it was so, it was, it was magnificent. And I got up there and I also thought, okay, well maybe my, maybe I'll be so oxygen deprived by then that I won't be able to actually enjoy the moment. And it won't be until after I come back and like really integrate it, that I'll be able to appreciate it. But 
I was totally, I was good. I was not, suddenly I wasn't nauseous anymore. I could have like skipped around. Like I was, you know, I had nothing but energy. Yeah. There was a feeling in me that just felt really whole. And like, I had everything I ever wanted. I didn't want to leave. Everything you ever wanted. What, so was there a standout emotion for you in that moment? I would say just bliss, joy, mm. like, like pure just connection with like God, but also oneself. There was, I, there, there was just a new, there was a, definitely a new level of like relationship with myself that I unlocked by getting up there and standing there because it's such a tangible way to kind of see like, could I do this one thing? It's a, probably a thing every human knows about the highest point in the world and kind of wonders about or maybe assumes that they couldn't do and for years I was the person who assumed I couldn't do it I know it's not like I I like had this goal for many years I just slowly as I got into more you know different things like adventure races and and you know just being outdoors more I just started to bump into people who are training for big mountains and when I heard them talking about it I thought oh well okay now I'm actually hanging out with people who are doing this stuff and it took many years for me to wonder like to turn that around on me and be like, wait, could I now do this? But yeah, whatever that relationship that I unlocked with myself up there, it changed things. So I came back down from the mountain and, you know, I, I, I couldn't lie to myself anymore about the life I had created and just that prestige was enough to get me to wake up every day and go do stuff I wasn't excited about. Mm -hmm. It wasn't enough anymore. Or that, you know, I needed authority figures to tell me what to do next. I actually like went off on a boss one day and there were some other things that I just, I started changing because I was like, okay, no, I'm not just going to like hold this all in and just take it on. And I, I started to become probably one of those people who were like, I can never join the army. I hate being told what to do. And I always thought, huh, why is it so hard being told what to do? You literally just go do what you were told to do. But then I realized like there's something that once, you know, once you realize like you actually are much more an author of your own story, that like it's a lot harder to just go blindly follow orders. And um, you just start to trust yourself more and like give yourself permission to start questioning things that don't feel like they're in alignment. Yeah. So uh, Sophie, for listeners, the chapter that you wrote in Wilder Journeys, Lori King and Miriam Lancewood is about your experience on Everest. So I really encourage everybody to go get a copy of Wilder Journeys because it's a really good book. There's a lot of great authors in there that have been on this podcast. And um, I'm just excited to have have you as part of that. So to hear that, that full Everest story, get a copy of Wilder Journeys. So you come back from Everest, you quit your job, mm -hmm. you move out of your New York City apartment, and you go on this two-year self-discovery living in a van. What, what did you find out in that two years? Oh, so much. I, it's like, oh, try to sum up, you know, two years of van <laughs> life. The, the van thing was really awesome for the exact moment of time that it was in. Like I got my van June of 2020. That was obviously a couple months into the pandemic. And it was just a weird time because most people were like, all right, travel is over. And I'm never, you know, I just... And I'm cooped up in this apartment and I can't, you know, that was kind of the, that was experience for pretty much anyone. And I saw kind of, this was the direction my life was going as a consultant who used to fly for work every week to go, you know, be with clients on, on the ground. And now this was turning into, nope, now you just use from your computer. Oh, and because you don't have to travel now, this just bleeds into 20 hours a day, seven days a week. 
And I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to be doing this for my computer, like I've been waiting for an excuse to be able to work remotely for many years. Like if I could squeeze going home one day early, like on a Wednesday instead of a Thursday from the client site, like to me, I could do so much with that one Wednesday. I could go out to dinner with, with a friend. I could, you know, I just saw like, there was so much I could do. And so now at this point, that's dangerous. Let Sophie be in a van doing this job. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I took it to the extreme. I said, okay, well, I'm going to be doing this job from national parks. Then I'm going to be like, yes, there are restrictions on how in some ways of what you can do because of what was going on with the state of the world. But I actually experienced so much freedom and freedom that I'd never had before because I'd always been, I'd always either like had roommates or been very strongly in like, entrenched in a specific community at any given chapter of my life and I'd never or like been in a relationship that was very you know very much like kind of part of my identity and this time I was just totally rootless like I didn't have a community in fact where I live changed every single day sometimes and I was anonymous everywhere I went no one knew me no one um, had any expectations of me no one it was it was really liberating and also just kind of, you know, not, not like no one could make plans with me. I make plans with you or no one knows where I am unless I tell you where I am. It was, it was that aspect of it was probably the most, I mean, people see van life and they just see like the epic destinations and yeah, that's a major part of it. And it's amazing. But for me, it was the most transformative part of this was just totally being on my own without the external influence of literally anything other than a little bit here and there dabbling and like then I'm on the move again. So with that time, I really worked on whatever this whole amorphous concept of like your relationship with yourself is. And I mean, I did like I even like set up little, you know, no like digital detox, like long periods of time. Like I even was in the woods for two weeks, you know, with no Internet at one point, you know, just bathing in the river over there and reading books and going for walks and having little, you know, like ceremonies, even it was, it was really just so, so powerful and freeing. I can imagine. I'm curious that there's a question that's coming to me right now. Like, as I just kind of look at all of your experiences throughout your life, do you find that that it it could be like a a real person or just like some kind of a voice inside of you? Have you experienced some sort of a voice again, whether it's internal or external, that's telling you, you can't do that. And then an overriding voice that says, watch me, I'm going to go do it. Yes. Yeah. I think you're picking up on like my inner rebel. That's my little black sheep. (laughs) (laughs) And I think because, you know, and like, I think we've talked a lot about like, you know, having strong authority figures being told what to do that being like a pattern of things that I like, And when it wasn't forced upon me, I would literally go seek it out sometimes. But at the same time, what I also naturally have, you know, from being raised so strictly and so, you know, counter to what my natural nature often was, there there was a piece in me as a kid that would rebel in all sorts of ways, sometimes, you know, healthy, sometimes unhealthy. And there's a version of me, even as an adult, that I've caught my, myself, like, sometimes like I'll even put you know all of these like I'll be the dictator and the strong authority figure but then there's the part of me within me that's like no I want to rebel against all these rules like I don't want to have this like crazy scheduler I 
I literally caught myself doing it last week. I had this big breakthrough how even though I'm homesteading now, and even though now I work part time in a job that I used to do for free, you know, I don't even know what day of the week it is today. Oh, I guess it's a weekday. Like I, I have all of that freedom. And yet there was still a part of me that realized I don't have enough hours in the day. And why do I feel like I'm not accomplishing enough? And why do I feel like I'm not getting this, you know, tiny home built fast enough? And I realized, oh my gosh, now I'm just, you know, I'm the dictator here making this not fun. But but yeah, I would rebel and be like, I'm taking three days love off. It. I'm just not going to do anything. And now I'm trying to, trying to find more balance because I'm good at that. The whole like work hard, play hard thing. Yeah. Um, and maybe maybe that this will be the rest of my life. But I am trying to find more balance and uh, just enjoy every every little thing I do instead of making everything feel like a task that I only get to enjoy once it's achieved. Yeah, I love it. So it kind of bringing this all together. As we think about 14 generations before you, and, and we talk about trauma, but I also think, you know, because we think about trauma, I think in a, in a negative sense, but there's also the good, right? There's 14 generations of, of good, bad, positive, negative, whatever you want to call it, that's, that's come into you. And there's going to be 14 generations beyond you. I'm just curious, like, as you kind of reflect on your own life and maybe even imagining what was before you and what might come after, is there a thread that connects it all? Oh yeah. I think and my thought was, you know, I may not know all the stories of all these people who came before me, but they are literally like, they are living through me and experiencing this now. And I'm so grateful because I get to experience things because I am on standing on their shoulders I'm standing on one generation before me's shoulders. I see that so clearly. Both my parents were not born into the type of, you know, like material wealth that I was born into, you know, upper middle class, even if it's like the suburbs, which doesn't feel glamorous. Like that's actually would have been the ultimate to probably a great, great grandparent probably would have looked at my life and been like, what? This is insane. And yeah, the hardships that they endured, but also like there's a part of me that like feels feels that and experience that also I'm not gonna like take full credit for the things that they endured but I know that like there's a fire in me that like they they you know got started someone did and like I'm just here stoking it continuously and trying to make it even better as for future generations it's literally my responsibility I don't yeah. even I don't even like get mad about things like I know I opened this up talking like about a lot of dark you know kind of like crazy things that probably could have been in a horror movie but look, that was the best my parents could, could come up with. And I see the big leaps and changes that they made from one generation before them to as their responsibility to improve what they were born into. And this is just my responsibility here. And I just think anyone who's alive right now has the tools and resources to do exactly what I'm doing. So, and there's plenty of people who are way further on the path than me and maybe didn't have as, you know, the same starting point that I did. But yeah, that's like, I'll, you know, I do this, because of what I was born into and that I need to make it better. But I also do it for them because, you know, I'm sure that's what, you know, all these generations before me would have wanted and would be, you know, it's so excited. I had like a, a ceremony, you know, this is just a thing that I made up, but um, a moment where I like called in both of my grandmothers on either side, I, they're both passed away now, but I just like wanted to have a conversation with them about, you know, any wisdom that they wanted to share with me. Cause I think about, you know, all you know ancestry a lot and I just so clearly heard this message that was like 
they were kind of like rolling their eyes at me and like, okay, here we go again. Like, why don't you just go enjoy your life? Like we had <laughs> such a hard time, but, and, and like, so that you, like we suffered so much so that you could, you know, have this amazing life. Like you already have it, like go live it and like take it to the fullest. And so, so yeah, I thought that was pretty wise of them. <laughs> Very wise. And so I want to take that and I want to ask you what, what is your hope and wish for the 14 generations that come after you? Oh, I hope that, you know, what people, some people say they see in me, which is a sense of adventure, a sense of fearlessness, a sense of um, just curiosity and a belief that you can just literally go do whatever you want to do. Um, I would like imagine, I, I just think that if 14 generations of people were trying that out, um, who knows what could happen by then. I, and it's not even like, I'm like, oh, you could create some new whiz bang gadget thing. It's more like that feeling of wholeness that I felt on the summit of Everest. Like, could someone feel that for a lifetime? Could mm -hmm. someone like pass that on to other people who aren't even related to them and like spread that? That would be, I mean, that's maybe why we're here. I don't know. I have all the answers. <laughs> that, that is an amazing way to wrap it up here. That's, I love that so much, but I do have a couple final questions for you. So what's next for you? I feel like the 50 meter target is Miriam Lancewood, who I know you, I listened to her episode that you yeah. recorded. Also. Um, one of my dear friends, we are heading to India. We're going to the Indian Himalayas this time for two months of just trekking a few iconic passes that we're really excited about, but we're not, you know, we're guiding ourselves and we're not hiring any, any porters or anyone to help us carry our stuff or any donkeys. Wow. And it's just, uh, it's just us. And, um, I've got a Garmin in reach <laughs> so yes. navigating that, but, but yeah, we, because we both were in this book, Wilder Journeys, um, both contributed to it. And we feel like the ethos of this book is really all about, you know, taking these explorations, you know, through nature and having these transformative experiences out there. And we haven't done, we've done some like, we've done some, some hardcore stuff in B Bulgaria together, but we hadn't like gone on like a proper expedition like this before. Yeah. So we're really excited to go out there and do that. So yeah, that's, I leave in a month, less than a month now. So that's, uh, that's coming up. And um, at the same time, I'm also, uh, I know I said before, like, a lot of people leave McKinsey and become entrepreneurs, but um, my friend and I, Kayla, we've been working on some a project called Free Rain, and it's still being developed. But essentially, we're trying to help connect veterans with outdoor opportunities once they transition out of the service. Whether it's you know a job that involves being outdoors, whether it's having a conventional job with an unconventional lifestyle like me, homesteading, or if it's you know just finding time to volunteer, but we're trying to create like a community and a library of resources and educational content for that. Um, so we're kind of developing that on mostly YouTube. So those are kind of the big things going on right now. And obviously, you know, keep these 15 chickens alive and keep the homes growing. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So I mean, if people want to find out more about you or kind of follow your adventures, what's the best way for them to do that? I post on, you know, I have a personal Instagram account at Sophie Hilaire. So I kind of, you know, like to share little creative versions of, you know, my reality um, on there from time to time. And once my podcast, I have a podcast established, Blah Blah Black Sheep. It's on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Um, 
And so if people subscribe to that, then they'll start hearing once my, you know, once the pilot episode actually drops, which will be closer to the end of this year. Awesome. But yeah, definitely will be little, little updates on there about the homestead. And uh, that whole podcast is about my life as a black sheep. Like the first several episodes will be kind of laying out my story in each of these chapters of life, starting with West Point, actually. But after that, I want to start bringing on guests who I think are other black sheep who have created or made lives for themselves outside the system because i know that my version of my life interesting to some people but not necessarily applicable to everyone so i just want to bring on more examples of people who are are making their own way in the world yeah i love that so much and then finally wilder journeys amazing book what's the best way for people to get a hold of a copy yeah well if you go on their website wilder journeys um you can find all different you know, links to purchase the book. It's on Amazon. I know some people don't like using Amazon. Some people only use Amazon. That's where I send most folks to go to go get a copy. You have lived truly an inspired life. You've got this culmination of 14 generations that live in you now. I know that at some point Hollywood's going to find out about you. (laughs) You're going to want to make a movie about your life. And when they do, I want to know who's going to be the Hollywood actress that's going to play you in your movie. No one has no one has even asked me about the answer. I don't know. I, I uh, maybe I'll just continue to write things. But um, you know, honestly, I don't watch a lot of movies. I watch like two movies a year. But um, but people tell me this actress Aubrey Plaza looks like me. I don't. She's kind. Of, she's like a comedian. So again, I don't know. If it's, <laughs> but some people and I and you know sometimes people are like that's your doppelganger and you're like I don't see it at all. But I can kind of see it and she's not even half Asian like me. So she she could play me and Aubrey probably Plaza. Be. All right, I love yeah. it. And so what's your movie going to be called? Blah blah black sheep. Just like my podcast that I started that I will return to by the end of this year. <laughs> yeah, blah blah black sheep. The movie and the podcast, which we are, uh, it's highly anticipated. I can't wait to listen to it. So I am so excited. Yeah. Um, Sophie, thank you so much for being such an inspiration. Thank you for your service and thank you for spending uh, your time with me today and, and sharing your story with listeners. And for those listening, I hope you have been inspired today as much as I have. I hope Sophie's story has encouraged you to listen to the voice inside that calls you to adventure because we want to hear your story next. If you have a story to tell or you just need a nudge to create one, please send me an email. We'd also appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word by leaving a review and sharing or tagging Inspire Campfire in your social media. And until next time, I want to encourage you to get outside. Thank you for listening. Sophie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Scott.